Welcome to My First Dungeon, the tabletop role-playing podcast where we help new game masters get started quickly and with confidence. Our goal is to guide you towards the very best resources and to introduce you to some of the most interesting thinkers and creators in the TTRPG space that can help you make your home games even better. While I imagine most of this audience is interested in playing RPGs with their friends, I'm guessing there is a certain percentage out there who, like myself, aspire to create RPG shows for others to enjoy as well. But building a game for an audience requires a whole different set of skills than just running one for your friends. And that's why I've brought in an expert on this very topic. He is a comedian, a writer, a performer, and the producer of the award-winning and wildly popular narrative play podcasts, Rude Tales of Magic, Fun City, and Oh These, Those Stars of Space, where he also plays such characters as Legs Loveless and Baron Baudelaire. If you by some chance don't already know who I'm talking about, I am about to tell you. Are you ready? Have I gone on long enough? Okay, I'll just tell you it's Taylor Moore. Oh, I was giving you the stretch <laughs> sign. More, longer. You want more? More. You want more? More oh, praise. Okay. okay, okay. Who's who's ready? He's he. I've 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 written. This is all the things I wrote. This is all the things. Say, I just I wrote. say say like, oh, his parents definitely understand his job. His parents are super supportive. You wouldn't believe how supportive they are and how understanding they are about what exactly it is. They ask every time they see him, what kind of bit rates you using? <laughs> Tell us about your bit rates. <laughs> Sam, what, what's that say? You use an MP3 or dot wav? Is it wav or wave? I've been mean, I've been hearing the kids talk about it. I would forgive them for saying wav. I think I would let dad off with the wav. Uh, Taylor, how's, how's it going? It's great to, uh, great to see you. It's uh, so nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. I'm, I'm really excited about this. I love what you and the entire team at Fortunate Horse do. I think all your shows are fantastic. Uh, I was telling you before we started, I've been recently binging Oh, These the Stars of Space. I think it's fantastic, uh, along with all the shows, but that one's been really in my craw recently. That's where we want to be. That's right where you want to be. You want to be right in the craw, yeah. baby. The target demo? Crawl. Crawl. Before, before we kind of get into the meat of it, can you tell me, how did you first get into tabletop role-playing games, RPGs, stuff like that? Oh, my God. I, was in, I grew up in the woods uh, in West Alabama, a place called Fayette County, Fayette and Pickens County. And uh, one day, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what the inciting incident was, but somehow one of the guys that lived on my street when I was a freshman in high school, his older brother was like a classic I mean, could have been cast in Freaks and Geeks like it was the mid 90s and he still looked like an older brother. Someone would have had in 1975, (laughs) like the big glasses that are now becoming hip again. Right. But were very nerdy for like 30, you know, 30 years, you know, and like tight jeans, a ponytail, a tool on his wallet, uh, like a tool on his belt. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, definitely going to be an I.T. guy. Uh, He (laughs) and I was friends with his little brother. And it was he was like, let me I'm going to show you guys how to play Dungeons and Dragons. And I mean, you talk about love at first sight. But then I, so we played a little bit in high school and then I didn't play again. And then I rediscovered it in college mm-hmm. uh, and then didn't play it for a long, long time. Because, you know, if I mean, it's like it's a weird this is and this was this is before I feel like the renaissance, the 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 yeah, the renaissance of it all yeah. has happened while I was working my last office job, which was at Kickstarter. And so surrounded by it uh, and was like, this is a great chance to try it again. So I did. And I haven't stopped since. Hell yeah. What was there? Was there a, like a moment in like seeing all the Kickstarter things happening? Was there a moment where it's just like, ping? Oh, right. I did love this. I got to do this again. Was there? I mean, there was there was a 
Yes. Yes. So <laughs> the, the tabletop role-playing world was just blowing up on Kickstarter. It turns out there was just a giant pile of oily rags laying around and all you needed to ignite it was like fundraising outside the big publishers mm-hmm. world, you know, and that's all it took. And so the the money was just like flying everywhere and the numbers were going wild just through the roof. And a lot of people in the company had never played anything like that before. So the guy who was Luke Crane, the guy who was in charge of games said, okay, I'm going to just run some D&D games to like show everybody what this thing that is now paying all your paychecks is. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he, he he's going to run. He said he was going to run some like classic red box, first edition D and uh, the old, the mold vase stuff, the uh-huh. vintage dungeons and dragons. And I was like, I know how to do that. And I just started working here. This is going to be a great way to meet people. So I joined, I started a level one D and D basic game with two of the company's founders. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. we played together for years, for years. That game went on for like, I'm not kidding, five years. That's especially for like a first edition game. Those are those are tough. That was brutal. I think I was only like level four when we after five years, you know, with, with the same character. Or did you go through a couple? Yes. No, oh, maybe no. I, I survived. That's I survived. impressive. Well, you know, I had a little bit of experience. And so, uh, you know, I was. I don't know. First first edition experience might not mean shit. (laughs) That's true. That game was bonkers. Yeah. But that was also so cool. Like, and then and being exposed to that and being exposed to all like the classic dungeon crawl stuff that was being published and all the histories and stuff Mm -hmm. that was also coming out about like. The, the early creation of D&D, I got really into like the history of it and the like all the, the theory behind it and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And so that's and so then I started playing again and then the, and then, you know, I started another game and I started DMing another game and I wrote all this stuff and all this stuff. I absolutely know that world. You start one. It's like, oh, now I'm a DM over. Here. Oh, 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 yep, oop, oop. and all of a sudden, like five out of seven nights are D&D DMing yep. nights and the Kickstarter office had this they built this live they, they built this new big building in Greenpoint in Brooklyn mm-hmm. this old abandoned warehouse we bought it and it was just a big cube full of rats and water and they built this like very comfortable modern cool office in there and one of the rooms was just like a giant library of actual books they just bought they bought a library collection from a dead publisher some guy in like pittsburgh that died and they bought his entire library of like all the books and just stuffed them in there so it looked cool and there was a (laughs) like a surreally large wooden table like straight out of game of thrones like bang in the middle of this room and and you you turn the lights off one of the walls was just all glass like looking into this like garden courtyard you turn the lights off you turn the lamps on you have never played in a better place and it was every night and it was in a room full it was in an office full of nerds and had you know so friends would come in and play it was just every night somebody was playing in there uh it was a really cool time to uh roll dice yeah for anyone who's listening right now who doesn't know what Rude Tales, Fun City, and Odysseus of Stars of Space are, can you give us just like a quick download on what these shows are? Yes. Our little production company is called Fortune Horse. We publish three shows. Fun City, which is a like Shadowrun based political social commentary, cyberpunk, New York City, 100 years in the future. There's hackers. There's also magic. Uh oh, didn't see that coming, did you? Or did you? You think you know it? You don't, baby. Fun City, which also <laughs> we also did like a big uh, campaign on Fun City of this um, 
during like when the pandemic first came, mm -hmm. we like a lot of like a lot of shows did. We sort of experimented and tried some other stuff. And one of the things we tried was this really cool, like surreal, weirdo, far future, million years in the future space weirdness sci-fi game called Still Fleet. And we did a whole campaign of that. And that was people loved it. So if you go on to Fun City, you can listen to the fun cyberpunk stuff or the weirdo space opera stuff. Both a blast. And then there's Root Tales of Magic, which is uh, 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 how do I I never know how to describe <laughs> it, the, the it's show. a tough one it's a, it's a it's a weird one yeah I mean what can I tell you like fantasy endangered in a fantasy world where a passion and mystery lurk around every corner I don't know how better to describe it than that <laughs> it's it's this sort of a uh, you know, surreal and bonkers road adventure story. It's very funny. I don't know what to tell you. Just it's fucking extremely funny and extremely rude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty rude. And then, of course, oh, these those stars of space, which is straight up an episodic, wild Star Trek pastiche. And that's not me clapping for myself. I'm dusting off my hands because that one is easy to explain. And you describe these shows, and the, I mean these shows are not built as actual play shows as most people might. No, they're built as what you guys are calling narrative play shows. Can you tell me a little right. bit about the difference there? Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is difficult because all like fiction shows that play a game on them or that use a game to tell the story are categorized as actual play shows. And that sucks because th that, that name does not really tell you what is going on. Right. But, you know, the category grew, of course, from people just playing games on camera and mic. Uh, both in podcast and on video. Uh, so it makes sense. But yeah, like none of these games are extremely tied to the rules. And all three of the shows, to different degrees, focus more on uh, character interaction and narrative uh, momentum than getting lost in the weeds of uh, rules and game stuff. It is definitely a spectrum. And just to say actual play is such a big category. Like, it may have started mm -hmm. as one thing and now it's expanded to such things as, you know, on one end of like the far narrative play is like mission to Zix. <laughs> That's controversial. I, I get in, I get in uh, the occasional argument uh, with my friends on that show with uh, Jeremy Bent. Huh? Uh, although I am willing to physically fight the entire cast. If they hear this um, fucking come get it. What, one at a time or just all together. I could probably take them all together. Mm, do, do, do you know, do you know what like the battlefield would be? Is there like Jeremy's battlefield? Did they just, take the battlefield? He's like eight feet tall. He could probably. Oh, yeah, he's got getting reach. close to that guy. You got to get in close to Jeremy. Uh, no. So they are just an improvised show. Right. But I would argue that because I was in some of the same classes as them, that they are actually they are the game they are playing is long form improvisation. Oh, yeah. I mean, long form improv is built around the idea of the game of a scene. It's yeah, just yeah. you don't some happen people, to have dice. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, the game doesn't have dice, but it does have rules of thumb and best practices uh, and certain techniques that they use. So, but they would say they're not playing a game, but you know, I mean, then we're getting into, we're getting into the philosophy of what makes a game and what is a game. And I don't know. I don't know. Right. I'm just, I'm just a guy. Yeah, who knows? And then, I mean, on the far end of the like true actual play shows are things like critical role or like streaming shows where you see every instance that happens at the table, regardless of whether that, that could be a shopping episode where you're just watching people spend gold that they made. Or it could be the epic narrative that you're probably really there for. I know, you know, don't get me wrong. I love a shopping episode as much as everybody, but <laughs> you're usually shooting for the narrative arc. Yeah, but people love the actual play stuff. And people love, I like, I have watched actual play streams of games that I want to understand. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, this game looks cool before I pitch 
me running it for someone let me go watch James D'Amato play it, you know, mm-hmm. on the one shot video and just like see how it goes. Uh, you know, how do they do it? How do they play it? I, so I, I mean, I, I love actual play stuff, but that's the thing, right? It's like, they're, they're all great. I, I, I feel like what has happened is a, a bunch of us tabletop nerds have stumbled into this, I, you know, here, so here's the thing. So D and D like, which gave birth to, what we call tabletop role-playing games, right. you know, I mean, like we don't have to like it, but that's the truth, but it didn't really. Right. Because like the war gaming stuff preexisted, but it was like, they saw what was cool about the war gaming and they experimented with it and like took parts away and added parts, the individual perspective, the concept of leveling up and all these different things, the turn bait, you know, all these things, how it works. And they stumbled across this, like not a secret formula, but they, I mean, it's, it's the way anything is invented or made. It's like someone realizes these pieces laying around can fit together this new way. And suddenly it's not sodium. It's not chloride. It's table salt. And right. that's a whole new thing. All of a sudden salad tastes good. You know, <laughs> sodium will kill you. Table salt. Oh, Wow potatoes are fun <laughs> you just salad was bad fun. for so long and then finally oh, we figured are, out salad to what fucking salt people you know like god you know people just say worth your weight in salt right isn't that a phrase that's a phrase um yeah, you know sure, i not? think uh yeah worth your salt whatever it rules um but it's like you figure <laughs> these things can come out and so people are playing these tabletop role-playing games and then I don't know, did like did a was a camera on a tripod and it fell over like a, like in flubber, like everything just sort of like there was an accident <laughs> in the lab and a camera someone left on <laughs> like fell over and caught someone DMing and they see it and they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, enhance. This is an entirely new medium of entertainment production, which is really what it is. I mean, that's what yeah. it is. I think. What what the what the the streamer, the, the, the tabletop world has stumbled upon is a really cool new way to produce serial storytelling. Right. And it doesn't really have anything to do with D and like the, the, the success that's been wrapped up in, in all of it now is sort of piggybacking on the pre-existing interest and market for Dungeons and Dragons mostly and mm-hmm. other tabletop role playing games. But like the fundamental principles could be applied in any genre at all. You don't need yeah. fantasy. You don't even need adventure or anything like that. And, and a lot of the new, a lot of the indie games are really trying to shed those, those, you know, stereotypes or those like tropes as much as possible and are doing more and more interesting and different things that haven't yeah, been great. as explicitly explored in things like, you know, D and D call of Cthulhu, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, like, look, like this is what's funny is, you know, I follow the the, t- the tabletop social media oh, it's bad. Uh, discourse sphere is like a chattering cloud of d- distraction demons that live between the worlds. And heaven forbid you walk through a portal the wrong way because they will eat <laughs> you alive like the goddamn Langoliers. It is it's it's, it's a, an atrocious place to be. But it's like people are acting like this is a big deal. It's not. All mediums and art forms go through this process. Mm-hmm. It, it, it always happens. You know, the Western, you know, I just watched some episodes of this Boba Fett show the other day. Yeah. That is a straight up Western serial, but it looks very different from the, the Western serials that were coming out in the late 50s, right? Right. It's not Have Gun, Will Travel. It's a whole other thing. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's just paladin with lasers, I, sort of. But it's like, yeah, like mediums, genres and things like that naturally variate. I mean, it's all the evolutionary process, right? It's like mm-hmm. replication, variation, selection. Uh, that's what you need in, in, and everything evolves from that. I, but, I, but here's the thing. Uh, I'm so glad you brought up the narrative and actual play distinction because I think that calling all of this actual play is preventing a lot of that evolution of the genre and of the medium. Right. Because it commits you, the producer, and it commits the listener to an idea that what you're about to witness is people playing a game. Mm-hmm. Which in the case of Rude Tales of Magic, it's li- it's like saying, "Hey, let's go watch someone use a word processor and you show them an episode of the X-Files." Yes, technically <laughs> that was written in a word processor and but. you are watching someone perform the results of what that word processor did, but that is an insane way to describe it. Yes. That is a wild way to describe it. And so especially on Rude Tales, we see the game, which is almost like the, the fact that we call it Dungeons and Dragons is like that's like calling Australia an island. Like right. technically, again, sure. sort of true, but it's not really you're not describing it the way people think of it. You know, like right. we use so little of the actual D&D rules that really <laughs> we call it D&D just because it communicates what's necessary about some of the stuff to some of the people. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's like we use that we use the game as a production method. So we we sit down, we are going to make a show, we're going to make a good show, we're going to have a good time doing it. A tabletop role-playing game is just one of the tools that we use to do that. Same as microphones, copper wire, or electricity, period. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, I would, not, I would say if, you're, if you want to know how to play Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, it might be a bad idea to base it off Root Tales of Magic. <laughs> we're not actually, you know, at, we, are we playing the game? I don't know. My favorite rule in Dungeons and Dragons is the first paragraph of the Dungeon Master's Guide where it's like, hey, just have have a good time out there. And honestly, like that is the like the tagline of the show. If you're having fun, you're already doing it right. Yeah. Great. Congrats. Good you job. It. You fucking you nailed it. The 10 yeah. out of 10. You did it right. There's a great episode of uh, God. I, I'll never forget this. OK, remember the show Growing Pains? Yeah. Do you remember this? Yeah. Yeah. There's an episode, so Kirk Cameron plays, what was his name, Mike. His name was Mike, and he's like a Bart Simpson sort of teenager, like, I'm I'm not too crazy about rules, but I'm charming and everybody likes me. And so he's going to cheat on a test. There's a test coming up, and he's going to cheat on it. So what he does is he takes a pair of sneakers, and he writes all the stuff that's going to be on the test on the bottom of the shoes. Mm -hmm. And then what his plan is, is that when the test comes, he's just going to cross his legs and read the bottom of his shoes, and I'll have all the information. Well, I think something goes wrong with his shoes, or like he, but he has to do it again. So he has to recopy everything onto the shoes. And then he goes in to take the test, and he realizes that having copied all the information out by longhand, he has now <laughs> learned the information of the test. And he no longer needs to, no longer cheat. Needs to cheat. He has tricked himself into studying, which is a long way of saying that sometimes we get sort of like caught up in the the superficial idea of what we are supposed to do, mm-hmm. we fail to recognize what we are actually doing, like in the moment. 
outside of like the prescribed rituals of what we think we're supposed to be doing. And there's a lot of times I, when I, when I'm DMing my own games, this happens of like, we're having fun. And then someone asks me a question. I'm like, ah, let me find the rule for that. Like an idiot. <laughs> like you are going to stop the momentum of this scene to look up how three, three quarters cover works. You ass. Just pick it up. It's the <laughs> first rule in the have book. Have fun. Have fucking fun, you asshole. Just go with it. Stop. It's, it's a cargo cult. It's like building earphones out of coconuts. Uh, it's like, no, stop. That's not how the mechanics of that actually work. You're already having a good time. Give yourself a pat on the back and don't fuck it up. And I think there is something to be said about you know when we have a, a, a category so broad as actual play that doesn't accurately describe everything within it. The, the greatest source of like any kind of tension you'll ever experience is a mismatch of expectation. And that's true in oh, like yeah. in work and relationships, in friendships, whatever, because you're coming in with an expectation of, oh, I'm going to see people play a game. And all of a sudden you don't see them, quote unquote, play that game or play the game as you anticipated. All of a sudden, it's like going into a movie thinking it's a comedy, but realizing it's a drama. It's like, oh, I oh meant, God, like, I'm sure this is a good movie, but I that wasn't what I was in for. I was ready to laugh. And now I'm. I've got to cry. I'm not in a yeah. cry mood. Yeah, I totally agree. Or like you sign up for a painting class and you get there and you're painting a barn. You know, you know what I mean? Like putting red paint on a barn. It's like, well, we're going like to uh, do a great job of painting this barn. It's like, that's not what I thought this was. I, I, I was really hoping to, you know, ex experiment with with my art yeah. form. And, yeah. and this is like, uh, day labor. Whose fault is that? It's the person that wrote the class description in the program. You right. shouldn't just call everything with a brush and paint painting. <laughs> That's a fun way you know, to put that it. is you have fucked up someone's good time because you have failed to distinguish in your nomenclature. And I think that's what we're doing by calling it all actual play. So what do I mean when I say narrative? play? So so I've talked about this online and people have gotten mad at me because they think I am saying that people that include all the rule discussion and rules in their show are not telling a story. That is not what I am saying. Here's how to tell if you're running an actual play or narrative play show. Mm -hmm. Right. Or here's, if, you, if, if, if you're if you want to run a show, you're not quite sure what you want to do. Think about these things. How much post-production editing are you going to be doing on the show? I think the more post you put into it, the greater the chances you're doing a narrative play, especially if we're talking about editing out things recorded at the table. Mm -hmm. This is why most live streaming is actual play, because it's not edited. It's live. You see it all there, though. Hypothetically. <laughs> I would even say that like the rude tales live shows are live narrative play. You can do it. It can be done, right. but it requires a, a much more <laughs> specialized skill set. That is someone who has probably paid thousands of dollars to be taken in by a coastal big city elite improv school <laughs> that we're still operating four years ago. Oh man, we can, no we can get around. deep into that, that dive yeah, if you want. Well, I mean, here's the, like, here's the thing is like, there's an enormous overlap in the skill set of, good tabletop role-playing and improvisation. You could talk about how dorky those things are and how lame it all is, because mm -hmm. here's the thing, we've all been dragged to bad improv shows. Or, you know, if you oh, live yeah. in a big city there's and, and you're in like the creative or the comedy or whatever world or the content, whatever media world, chances are you've been taken or inv invited to someone's improv class and a lot of uh, a show and a lot of them are really bad. So it gets a bad rap. But the thing is, is this that most of everything is shit. Um, yeah. But the skill set you learn in doing it is extremely applicable. And the thing is, like, I don't want anyone to listen to this and take away from it. The only way I can start a good show is by learning improv. 
all that improv is, is because it's so similar and crosses over so much. It's essentially, hey, I've gotten months, weeks, years of practice with a teacher who's saying, like, here's how you do it better. That happens to translate very well to the, the type of show you're trying to make. Yeah, I mean, like, there's there's worse ways to practice. Yeah. You know, there's definitely worse ways to practice. Uh, I'm friends with Brenda Mulligan, the DM at Dementia 20. Uh, that guy, I really, you know, I met him through doing improv in New York. Mm-hmm. And I he definitely was a better improviser having done tabletop and LARPing stuff for decades before he started doing improv shows. A hundred percent. The role play, it's, it's, it's almost the same thing, really. Right. Uh, so anyway, so narrative play, actual play. <laughs> the more you are cutting from your show, the higher the chances you're going to do narrative play. The less rules you have, the higher chances you're focusing on narrative play. And here's a big one. If you're adding content to the show, if you are adding copy, if you're adding really like big emotionally, not just music beds, but I mean like music cues because mm-hmm. anybody can put some music under dialogue. I'm talking about like, we're talking about like John Williams working with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Like the music is part of the experience mm-hmm. that level. Not, no, listen, we all aspire to that, but I'm just saying like you're trying to manipulate the audience's emotion with post-production, right? The closer you get into narrative play. Like all those things sort of nudge you one direction on a spectrum and neither end of the spectrum is better than the other. But, but having a name for things that focus, they're willing to edit and produce things in a way that is focusing on an emotional journey and narrative momentum. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a big deal. So like an actual play show, let's just say it's playing rules is written. Right. Let's just say it's a hardcore rules is written show. You can have dynamic performances from the DM and the cast. You can have great production, video, audio, whatever. Big music cues, incredibly well-produced Foley and all these things. But like at some point, at some point, something is going to happen. Someone is going to make a move that sucks narratively. Now, here's the thing. Improv teaches you this, and I think good DMs know this. There's almost no such thing as a bad move that a player can make, right? Yeah. In improv, you call it justification. So, uh, and Branson Reese, who's the DM of Rootails, is extremely good at this. A lot of the great DMs, Brandon Mulligan, very, very good at this. No matter what the players do, you can make it look important and smart and good, mm-hmm. right? But that power <laughs> has limits. <laughs> not every move can, not, you can't polish every turd. So every, even an actual play in an actual play show where you're not cutting very much and you're doing the rules as written, someone might make a move and you're like, look, hey, <laughs> we've been doing this show for three years. We've done 100 episodes. Maybe you should put the sapphire of Kronton in the pillar of vortex that's going to kill the evil wizard. You're right. right there by it. Come on, dude. Just fucking do it. Can we go back and you just do the thing that we've been building up to do for, you know, I listen. This is not a great example, but you understand what I'm saying. It's if you're building towards a narrative thing and all of a sudden you do the like kind of shitty D&D player thing that everyone does from time to time of like, uh, f- you know, I'm not going to beat the dragon. Let's go farm some sheep or whatever. It's like, yeah, well, no, let's do the thing that we want to do. Or or even like this or some or there's and we've had this happen on Rootails. There's a mistake mm-hmm. like someone in a pivotable, in a pivotable. Fuck me. Leave that in as punishment. Oh, I'm keeping it. In a pivotal climactic moment within an arc, someone mishears someone else mm-hmm. 
And then they think something else is going on. And so you then you have two improvisers, two players at the table that are trying to build a story with completely different assumptions about what's going on in the scene. And it breaks. Right. Right. Like, it's like, wait, fuck, the last 10 minutes made no sense. Because I thought you said this. Like, no, I said a word that sounded like that. And let, you know, so, so what do you do in an actual play show? Well, that's what happened. That's what actually happened. That's what actually happened in a narrative show. No fucking way you leave that in. No right. fucking way. I don't think so. Far into the narrative spectrum. No way that gets cut because a narrative show focuses way more on emotional and narrative momentum for the listener than a high fidelity representation of what happens at a table, no matter how good that table is, you know, and just different considerations. Another way to kind of look at this is, you know, even taking away the idea of editing or something, the further the experience of the listener gets from the experience of the player, the closer you get to narrative play. Absolutely. Because you might add things in. So something we do at Rude Tales, uh, you know, all DMs have their style. And I would say that Branson, uh, his one of his greatest strengths uh, as a DM is characters and relationships mm -hmm. and dialogue and role play. I mean, a real savant at it. You heard it here first. He has he's never done any hard work. Uh, he doesn't practice. He was born it with was it. And therefore, yes, uh, like, pure like a Mozart, bullshit. very talented, but doesn't understand what he's doing uh, and kind of a, a child or a fool at play in the fields of the Lord. And you can tell him I said it. Uh, That's going to be the clip I use for the promo. Yeah, right please there. do. Uh, please <laughs> let this be the beef that destroys us. When he goes into a scene, he thinks characters. Mm -hmm. Like, how do I get them to this character? What's his character doing? But when we're building an audio drama, we're building an audio narrative. The thing about audio fiction, and audio narrative, it's extremely visual. You have to tell people, and you know, prose is the same way, you know, mm -hmm. like human beings are just so visual. Any non-visual art, I think, has to make, except for music, baby, music, the queen of all the arts. Uh, <laughs> but when you're telling a story, people need to know what to imagine. So you know, This American Life published a guide to how to do what they do a long time. This is like late nineties or early aughts, I think. And it was just called like radio, a how-to guide. I would recommend if anyone wants to make like a serious show like this, you can, you can pick up a copy. I think it's only a few bucks. You can also find free versions online and I recommend reading it. I'll post them in the show notes. All the tech stuff is like, here's how to cut tape with a cassette. <laughs> like it's like old tech, <laughs> but, the, but the principles of like, here's how to interview a subject. Here's how to write descriptive prose for audio. That shit's gold. And one of the things they talk about is location. That when they, when someone from This American Life goes out and interviews a subject, the questions you should be asking them are, where were you standing when that happened? What time of day was it? What season was it? Sure. Like, it, if you were in the kitchen, were you cooking? What were you cooking? You know, like, and all that is, is to get information to physically place the listener in this, the, this giant, like, like, spherical theater of the imagination. Right. And one thing that we do on Rutales is we go back and in the post-production, we'll go back and we'll create some new descriptive copy. That's all, you know, that's all it takes, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's like, all right, so what does this place smell like? What does it look like? If I'm creating the narrative of this in my mind, if I'm going on the journey with the show, what do I want to see? We want to tell the listener, well, it's dark, it's wet. There's a, it's a, it's a giant cavern, but there's a waterfall. So there's this constant rushing sound. Boom. And that's a good audio hook I can use. Bring up the waterfall as the waterfall is mentioned. We're building that theater of the mind and all these sensory things. So all that is to say is if you're adding all these like sensory details or plot corrections or mm -hmm. a little bit of foreshadowing in post where the players 
can't hear it, that ain't actual play, baby. That is not actual play. Because in actual play, part of what you're watching is the interplay of the information asymmetry between the dungeon master and the player. Yes. Are they asking the right questions? What did the dungeon master, you know, did, did, did she drop like a clue that the listener heard, but not the players? Oh, that's interesting stuff. And we can do that too in narrative, but in an actual play, I think it would be unfair to the audience and the players. If there's more description and information put in the show after, whereas with rude tales, that's not our consideration. Our consideration is like, manipulating the emotions of the listener. <laughs> we want, we are, we are there to achieve catharsis. But that's also something that you guys decided in the like pre-production phase when you were kind of coming up with the show. Oh, absolutely. And it's a hundred percent inspired by balance and Griff, what, what, what oh, Griffin, yeah. the way Griffin McElroy DM'd the balance arc. I remember faking a sick day mm-hmm. from work. I had saved up the last four episodes of the balance arc. Oh, man. I was like, Hell I'm yeah. listening to these back to back. I, Called in sick, took the day off work and just laid on my bed and listened to him. And it was like, I don't know, sometimes you, uh, if you're lucky in life, sometimes like a work of art will just punch you in the fucking face. And there's a lot of ways that art can do that. And I think like listening to especially the back half of the balance art, it really blew my mind because as you're listening to balance, you're hearing Griffin, really mostly, because because he's because remember he was producing it, he was editing it, scoring it, and DMing it. Mm-hmm. So while the, the the brothers, the McElroys act as a collective, I really feel like the balance arc. What made it so great to me was I was watching someone realize while they were creating a new kind of entertainment that they were creating a new kind of entertainment. Balance arc was the first like D and D content I really listened to. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I tried Critical Role, but I like couldn't quite get it. It was, you know, the first couple of episodes sound bad. I just couldn't quite get into it. But balance was great. And there are a few moments that I can very distinctly remember yes. where exactly I was when I heard it. Yep. And one of them was the first time a couple episodes in when Griffin adds in like original music for like an yes. outro scene that is yes. very specifically designed to manipulate the emotions of the listener. And yeah, I remember it's like, like I, I know we, I was on 23rd Street. I know exactly where I was <laughs> because I like literally I was walking with, with one experience in my head of like an actual play show, kind of. And then all of a sudden it hit and I was like, oh, this is becoming something new. Yes, it's becoming and it's working. Mm-hmm. And like that process of like, oh, this guy is like realizing that he's in a box and just systematically like. He's got an exacto knife and he's just like cutting holes in the box. And then eventually there's no more box. And it's just, you know, he invents entirely new systems of rules and play mm-hmm. for the last few episodes, last handful of episodes of balance. And that was when I was like, oh, oh, and it just blew my mind open. This like the principles of tabletop role playing game combined with the principles and the economies of scale of audio Mm post-production. And add on to that, if you can find a cast of people who are good at improvising and they like each other. Which are are two uh, very difficult things to put together. Yes, that's the thing. Like, say what you will about the McElroys, but like they achieved something really remarkable there of like all the ingredients coming into the place at the same. Now, listen, of course, there were other actual play shows mm-hmm. there might have been other narrative play shows that i'm not entirely aware of and of course there are improvised fictional and written fictional series and all that stuff but they i think got it's like you're making chili 
they got just enough meat, just enough cumin, just enough. Like they figured out the ratio of ingredients to where it became something new. Yes. You know, and like that, the, the that back half of balance really was like, oh, shit. You are witnessing the creation of like a new mode of telling stories, which sounds so fucking pretentious. But God damn it. I'm Honestly, right. Like, it, it, I'm right. You know, motherfuckers. You know, to be me. fair. I, I absolutely agree that you're right. And I think, you know, there is an aspect of this show in particular where, you know, in episode three of most of our seasons, we talk back about how we could have made a game better. And like yeah. when you take a step back, it's like we're talking about how to play make believe better. It's like there is an aspect of that that is absurd, but it's what we want to do. It's what we love. It's what we care about. But there is an aspect of that first balance arc because they were in the bubble of actual play. I know there mm-hmm. is a portion of people wrongly so who start to not like the end of the balance arc because it gets away from that crunchy yeah. D and D because course. it was becoming a new thing. And we didn't have the vocabulary with which to describe it. Oh, the old hates the new uh, every time, every time because the old like things that are successful create a world of vocabulary and practices around themselves. Right. Like in the same, like it's, it all goes back to ecology for me. Like species will change the environment to suit them and the environment will change species to suit the environment. And all these systems are acting as pressures on each other, but then something fantastically new happens. Something new is born and it doesn't quite fit in the world yet. You know, it's like there's, there's friction there. And part of that friction is like people going online to say, Oh, railroading you idiot. (laughs) <laughs> but 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 with that because because there is absolutely a portion of the, of any of these populations that is kind of malicious with this intent i think oh, sure. a good portion of it is that mismatch of expectations creating yes. that tension like you're going and expecting this you're getting this yes. even if the thing you're getting is as amazing as the balance arc if you go in thinking it is critical role you're gonna be disappointed or at least of course have I a, signed up for a painting class and now we're painting a barn exactly it, it, it is it is a failure of communication but that you know, it always happens uh, you know so I, I but I hope that was how long ago that was years and years and years ago was yeah. it five six years how long ago was that how long ago balance how long ago that Brian? how long it, it's gotta you know be it gotta, gotta be good like five five four five years ago that I was think, the Obama you know? years you know like oh, come it on. was a simpler time back then I gotta tell you <laughs> oh buddy was it a simpler time uh Maybe not simple. It was a different time. I don't know yeah. if it was better. It was it was a time. <laughs> so it is time for everybody to grow the fuck up and realize that there's a lot more you can do with improvisational fiction guided. Right. Because mm. we, we guided by game like principles than actual play stuff, which is great. But let, we got to let the world be more. And so I think narrative play is a I mean, I'm not married to the phrase, but like we need to start thinking of this as not reproducing what you can do at home at your table, but using those principles as a new way to yeah, make fun shows and have fun with right. friends. And, and it is like everyone who listens to any kind of actual play narrative play show or any kind of podcast. You've been exposed to stories of any form for your entire life, more than any other like time in history. Like we watch so much TV, listen to so many podcasts, read so many books. We know, even if we can't describe it, we know what narrative structure is. We know what arcs are. We know how you're supposed to feel at the beginning of a story and at the end of a story. Actual play can certainly do that, but there are lots of times in actual play shows that go against that structure to a Mm -hmm. way that feels not great or it, it doesn't match expectations. Narrative play is just trying to better fit that structure, which isn't inherent to a tabletop role playing game where you're fucking around with your friends. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and that's the thing. Like if you it, 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 it's so strange because it's like <laughs> if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, think about it like this. So I've always said that, like, 
D&D and all of its spawn, there are like, I'm sorry. I am. I am sincerely sorry that like the way communication works means I'm going to do what I'm about to do. But Uh-oh. I am going to use Uh-oh. Dungeons and Dragons Uh-oh. as a sort of or name for all of its, you know, category right. that it's created. And so we just I'm lost twenty five percent of the listenership I right know, there. I know. I'm. They're going to put me on the Golgotha after this. Uh, but I understand. I'm just doing it for quickness. There are three. To my mind, there are three like mega categories of pleasure. And like that, the reason that, that game and those games are successful and what, what makes them different is how much of each of that category they play to. So the three categories are number one, the fiction. Mm-hmm. And that includes like how like cool images produced by the world, world building and the just human pleasure we derive from telling stories and being have stories and being told stories. Right. From hearing a good story, from telling a good story, and all the cool images and characters and stuff, like the fiction. Sure. Uh, the second one is the puzzle. You get the map out. You draw all the things. You know that, like, Ray of Frost has this range, and your turn is coming up in three turns, but the person before you, it, th- they're giving you that look. They're going to ready a fucking action to help you. So if you move just this number of spaces and you save your one reaction for this round, like... If you play it right, it's like a Rubik's Cube or a crossword puzzle or anything like that. Right. You know, a lot of human beings love to have those things click into place. I solved the fucking puzzle. I hit them. I and I, I killed the fucking ogre. Like, you know, you're, when you're playing on the grid and things like that. Uh, and there's elements of story, too, that can work as a puzzle. The game itself, the battle aspect of the game can be a puzzle. Other games have aspects of puzzling that has nothing to do with battle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we love we love to get that five-letter word in the wordle. We love to finish the Sunday crossword. <laughs> we love to hear that last turn of the Rubik's Cube click into place. It's the same thing with a really well-done bit of gaming puzzle. The third category is all those other things are socially determined, mm-hmm. right? Human beings, just most of us, social creatures, we love talking with people, negotiating with people, being around, having a good time with friends. You know, fuck me, put me on Golgotha if you want, but I'm saying most people love to have a good time with friends. And and, and there's and another so, 25% of our audience that just left. <laughs> <laughs> but you can, so you could take these games and then you can mix and match the amounts of both. So even if you could take the fun with friends aspect and take it, to, like pull that slider down to zero and you get like a, maybe a cool journaling game. Mm-hmm. Right. Or you can pull you can pull the uh, the puzzle aspect all the way down to zero. And then you've got, you know, I mean, like you can imagine like, right, if, you know, right, in kind the of like crossing game. almost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like there is no puzzle aspect. Like it's just all it is, is you're telling story with friends. It's a collaborative storytelling game. Right? right. There's a lot of games like that. And you can move these sliders anyway. You know, and, and look, you can even take the story slider all the way down and, you know, just like play one level of Gloomhaven. Yeah. Which is just, you know, you're working with friends to solve this battle puzzle. There's almost no narrative involved in that at all. Apologies to the writers of the great copy for Gloomhaven. But, you know, I mean, it's just or chess. I mean, you can even say that that's like kind of what chess is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so you move these sliders around, you get all these different games. And the same way you can generate different games like that, you can generate different shows with the same principles. And Rue Tales of Magic is just, well, we don't do a lot of the puzzling stuff, shit. You know, that's all it is. That's all it is. Just playing with the ingredient amount. There are so many different types of things that could fit in this category. I do want to take a step back and look at some like concrete stuff that a listener can take away. If, if, if you are listening to this and you want to create a type of show, yeah. let's kind of go through you and me. Cause you know, I make more of a 
what I would call like an enhanced actual play. It's actual play, but I do a lot of like, I manipulate the emotions with music cues and things, but I don't, I generally don't add in copy afterwards. So it's mm-hmm. actual play plus, and you are doing, you know, hard like narrative play. Uh, so let's go through the pre-production, production and post-production for each of our shows and kind of show what that spectrum can look like. Oh boy. Yeah. So when you guys started Rude Tales or Fun City or these sorts of space, what considerations did you take into account when you were prepping the game and prepping, you know, the production process that you wouldn't put in place in like a home game? What are some considerations that people might not be thinking of if they're trying to make a narrative play show? Oh boy, what a great question. And it's, that's a great way to get away from like a bunch of bullshit, pretentious, like theory stuff. And then the, 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 the nitty gritty of producing these oh, shows. No, don't get me wrong. I'm going to leave it most of the, oh, the cause I, I love it. I, and honestly, I'll, I think this is day, a conversation maybe. that I want to see put out in the world because I think defining these, this spectrum a little bit more will help hopefully silence some of that, you know, social media squad. I mean, it won't, but you know, at least well, give yeah. someone some context. Like real quick, real quick aside, last yeah, yeah, little bit about it. this. We had a couple of episodes that people fucking hated. <laughs> I mean, was this the, the Thirsty Falls? Oh, God, you named it. Uh, I think they're fine. But like people fucking hated them. And the reason that they said they hated them was railroading. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that I think it's bullshit. I think the real reason they didn't like those episodes is like the structure wasn't very tight. And people don't like stories with bad structure. It's just the way it goes. Right. But the only vocabulary they had to express the only like, you know, I don't like this. What word should I use to describe why? And you look at the pile of words and there's a pile of words you use to describe Dungeons and Dragons podcast and railroading is just right there on top. And so it's just the one that's just the closest. And we're going to use that. Yeah. And it's like, I fucking yell at me if you want. But like, at least you should be critiquing the art that you're talking about on the terms that the art is presented to you. Yes. Right. I shouldn't look at the Godfather and be like, mm, I don't know. I only like things that are seven hours long. What's like, OK, <laughs> right. That's fine if you only like things that are seven hours long. But this person set out to make a three hour movie. It's like I, I, I work in um, uh, television. I do a lot of uh, food competition shows. And every time they do like the judging of the food, every now and then there'll be a judge who says like, well, we, we've got this beautiful plate in front of me, but I don't like papaya. So yeah, well, you don't you, win. It's like doesn't matter what you like. Like you've got to judge the dish based on what was presented to you, not your preferences. Yeah. And you, you cannot like the dish. Absolutely. You cannot like the show. Absolutely. But to use the wrong vocabulary to do it is not helping anybody. That being said, however, I did. It, there is something to it. Whereas even in narrative play shows, because they're improvised. So improvisation, right? No matter how well edited you do it, mm-hmm. there's always an aspect of it a lot of the enjoyment of it is based on the audience being able to tell that the people doing it are interacting with each other genuinely. Yes. So what, what I mean to say is that like you can watch them be surprised by each other. That is almost impossible to replicate with like a play, a play or a screen, a screenplay or anything like that. Yeah. Very, very difficult. One of the greatest, I think compliments a writer can get is like, Oh, was that improvised? Anytime you write dialogue, you want people to feel like that. It was so organic and natural that it was being right. created on the spot. It was right? just happening. The, the world yeah. was being created in front of them. We love it. So even though we are trying to hit a narrative show and we're focusing on narrative, we still leave in some table talk and some conversation amongst the cast about what's going on because you're really telling two stories. One is the story of the show and the other is the story of the people making the show, making that show together. Right. And that's, you know, that's where the, 
great things about seeing live, good live improv is that you're, you're watching them watch themselves make it with you. And so you're really seeing two things. You're seeing the scene is presented and you're seeing the people who are performing it, experiencing it with you for the first time. Right. But even if you look at like TV shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which a lot of scenes are improvised based on an outline, I think one of the reasons that it works and shows in TV like that work is that you can just sub- subconsciously, you can tell that they're kind of being surprised at the other person genuinely. And so it activates a little bit of that second level storytelling you get from watching people improvise. So even at the far ass, far, far level of narrative play, you know, you can still hear people laugh at each other out of character. Right. And it's because when there's those little breaks, you or when there's those little moments, you're not only enjoying the character that is being played, you're enjoying the person that is playing the character. And like, why wouldn't you want to enjoy both of those things? Like, it's great to have both of those kind of highs of watching a piece of entertainment. Absolutely. Yeah, It, it, it would be foolish, I think, to try and rid the show entirely of that. Yeah, it would be all the all the poor for it because you like seeing the people figure like you like hearing the laugh of being surprised yeah. by a, the crazy thing a friend did. And then also having to hear what might be uh, incongruous reaction from the character. Like if I think a move is funny, but my character thinks it's bad. It's funny to see both of those things happen yeah. from the same. So mouth. I guess my first advice to someone looking to produce this sort of show is don't be a zealot. Don't be like don't Lady of Macbeth this thing and try to scrub out every single spot. Right. Like you got to leave in some of the dirt or otherwise it doesn't feel human. I think the 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 reason a lot of audio fiction has not caught on and and the reason a lot of chat shows have is there's something about the intimacy of audio where we're I, I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something about the intimacy of audio where we're more eager to welcome in just like people laughing and goofing around with us mm-hmm. than like hardcore narrative of others, like the capital O other into our heads. The way I've kind of thought about it is that it's so intimate because when you have headphones on, it kind of feels like it has the same sensation of the voice in your head, like the way yeah. you think. And no one thinks the way that, in, that, that many narrative, I, I don't, I, I love yes. a lot of narrative podcasts. I think that's really smart. Yeah. But when you just hear people talking and like chatting, that's how your voice sounds in your head. That's how the world yes. sounds. When something gets too far removed from that, it there's an incongruity that like doesn't you can't relax into it in the same way you can relax into a good conversation. Absolutely. And that remi- reminds me of how film editors find that a lot of times when they are making a cut that the characters on screen at that moment where the editor wants to cut, the actors are blinking. Mm hmm. And it's because it's this like connection of the actors are responding to an emotional beat in that moment. And the editor is also responding to that sort of cesura of emotional momentum. At the same time, a good film edit job, the edits come at the time that feel subconsciously normal to your eye and to your brain. Yeah. It's just like watching the movie. There's no work like the edits come when you, the viewer, are blinking. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense with audio that we we want what we're listening to to sort of match the reactive pattern of our brain. Where oh, we're laughing at that too, or like we're surprised at that too. Yeah. And the the thing we're listening to is reacting to itself just like we might. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And and I do want to say there are some fiction podcasts I love that 
definitely don't have like, I mean, if you listen to the Hitchhiker's Guide podcast, like, are you kidding me? The thing is amazing. If you listen yeah, to, but they have not taken off like chat shows have. No. Yeah. It's just they a haven't. different thing. And, and I think, and that is another thing that kind of could come from this world. Like, you know, a fiction podcast is just one step removed from the far end of narrative play. And I think oh, yeah. there, there is a, a world where that spectrum will just take off more as, as we like slowly better define this overly large category and we start experimenting more and more and more in the way that rude tales in the way that oh, these, those stars in the way that a lot of these types of shows are experimenting. And I think that's how we, you know, upgrade what was, you know, the classic genre of, you know, radio drama to mm-hmm. something new that is consumed by a 21st century audience. So used to a visual medium. I think, and I really think that if we're, if we, if, if the industry is able to successfully experiment with improvised fiction, that might be the way we, we do it. Yeah. But the industry is very hesitant to this because the industry is very much mired in number one, the production process of hiring writers first, right? They write it. Then you produce it. They love that model. They love it. They love it because People with money don't trust anybody else. And they're in love with this idea of the writer, like this archetype of a writer. Uh, and everyone, everyone in radio thinks they're, everyone thinks they're a writer. Like, every, you know, everyone wants to be that person banging away at the typewriter, you know. Uh, it's just that the image just, you know, it's very powerful. Whereas the improviser is God's fool. Just like the absolute sucker of the 21st century media landscape, unless you look at how many people have been you know, made millionaires by <laughs> the, the improv renaissance in TV. I will say, and, and you'll think a little bit less of me and some of the audience may as well. There was a time, especially when I first moved to New York and I was seeing a lot of friends improv shows and they were like improv 101, you know, in the back room of, you know, Legion Bar or something like that. Just the dirtiest little bar in all of Brooklyn. Oh, I'm well aware of Legion, my friend. Oh, I've, got a, I've got a real soft spot for Legion Bar, but man, it was a <laughs> shitty little bar. I was under, and I was fairly vocal about uh, my idea that nothing, that improv could not be better than sketch because sketch is just improv, but with time to think about it and make it better, which like I, yeah. I could still understand my logic. Essentially, it was like, hey, first drafts of anything aren't gold. It's all, it only becomes gold with editing and editing and editing. But- that magic of great improv, that magic of seeing it happen in the moment as an audience member, giving yourself over to the world and like experiencing those characters have these crazy adventures, but also have that background knowledge of experiencing these people have these crazy adventures mm-hmm. is something you just can't get from sketch because it only gives you the one thing. It gives you the characters, which is why people so often love in like SNL sketches when people break, like there's whole compilations on YouTube yeah. of, you know, Jimmy Fallon. Cause he laughs at everything, laughing at something. It's fun because you, for, for a moment, you remember that there's a person there as well. Yeah. And you're watching it with them and they're reacting in the way that you want to react. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, there's this connection between the performer and the viewer that I think rules. And that's why that's the, the spark of improvisation provides that. And what actual play shows did, they were like, watch us use play by the rules. But what they were actually doing, the flubber they were accidentally creating was they were capturing this group of performers reacting to themselves as they were performing. And it was delightful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, who the fuck uh, knew? It, it's great. That's it for part one of this interview with Taylor Moore. 
Next week, we will dive into some real world production considerations that will be invaluable for anyone looking to start their very own narrative play show. Until then, please remember to check out the fantastic narrative play podcast from Fortunate Horse. Those are Rude Tales of Magic, Fun City, and Oh These, Those Stars of Space. You can get them wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like them, please consider supporting them on Patreon to get extra episodes, talkbacks, and all kinds of great bonus content. You can find Taylor on Twitter at taylor.biz. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R-D-O-T-B-I-Z. And you can keep up with news on this show and all the others in the Fractured Realms on Twitter at 20SidedPod. That's T-W-E-N-T-Y-S-I-D-E-D-P-O-D. And remember, if you're having fun, you're already doing it right. See you next week, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. This is Brian, your friendly neighborhood dungeon master and the host of Cannon Fodder. If you want to learn even more about the Fractured Realms and also discover brand new playable content, DM tips and tricks, and interviews with interesting people in the TTRPG community, consider checking out the 20-sided newsletter. It's a free bi-monthly email newsletter that delivers a ton of cool content and keeps you up to date on all the latest projects within the 20-sided podcast universe. To subscribe, you can click on the link below in the show notes or go to 20 Thanks.